Uh, Good morning, Grace family. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Today we get to address an uncomfortable topic, uh, the battle with sin within. The battle with sin within. Isn't that the reality that we live with? What a battle. I want you to know something. If you're a Christian, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There is comfort in Christ uh, for the repentant, and there is power to live in his victory. And I know life is a mixed bag of a lot of things. There is joy. I mean, someone comes to faith in Christ, and everyone's joyful. There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, and there is joy on earth when someone comes to Christ. There is gladness. Many of you are like, yes, school is out. I'm glad. Right? All the kids are excited. All the parents, you know, they're wondering. There is grief. A loved one dies. You experience loss. There is sadness. Someone leaves the faith. There is victory. You have a relationship reconciled that was, that was split up and, and it's back together. There, there is defeat where maybe unforgiveness just festers and, and won't get settled. And, and there is growth. You, you see growth in Christ. You see godly character in your life and the life of others. And there's discouragement. There's discouragement because you see continued patterns of sin in your life. You, you see the frustration of that. And, and I guess I just want to say before I read the word here, I just want to say thank God that he is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction. That we actually can have great joy in Christ and growth and comfort in Christ even while we are struggling daily with sin. Now if you're a Christian today, that's your, your lot. You know you have a battle going on in your heart. And what I hope you see today is that the heart of the battle, the epicenter, the, the eye of the storm, is where God wants to meet you at your greatest need for His grace. And if you're not a believer in Jesus today, I want you to see the gospel truth. I want you to see that, that Jesus died for our sins in our place and God is holy and we are sinful and Jesus died for us and was buried and was risen on the third day and he's coming back and and if you believe him, if you trust your soul into his hands, he saves you, he forgives you, he gives you a new life and I hope you will even see that as we go through this idea of the battle with sin within So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans 7, and I want you to stand with me if you're able as I read the word, and we know we're not sinless as believers in Jesus, not by a long shot. We know we're in an ongoing battle with indwelling sin, and we also know that God wants us to have a thoroughly biblical mindset. God wants us to know what the word says. So in one sense, I I would put it this way, Romans 7, 14 to 25, to the rescue. All right, we are positionally new creatures in Christ. We are being progressively sanctified with an ongoing battle with indwelling sin. We're going to focus on this this week and next week as well. I'm going to get to read right now the uh, inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. I'll begin at 
Romans chapter 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our hearts to understand it and to to do what you intend for us to do. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in our hearts amongst this assembly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, have a seat there. This is a tough passage of Scripture, and Paul it says I like 26 times, so it's very personal, very personal. Now, the overarching theme of Romans 7 is that God unites believers to Christ to bear fruit for Him. You see that in the first few chap- uh, verses of Romans 7, and it involves ongoing battle with sin. You see that for the remainder of the chapter. So that we would put our trust in Christ. You see that in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The context of Romans 7 is a progressive sanctification of those justified in Christ. Those made right with God through faith in Christ. Through the finished work of Christ. Again, believing that he died for our sins, was buried, was raised on the third day, and is returning with blessing for believers and judgment for those who refuse to believe. The idea here in in Romans 7 is that God works in us despite our sin. God is actually at work in believers despite the battle with sin, and he is working to conform us to Christ. And the journey is going towards guaranteed victory, but it is a battle, it is a war, It is a conflict until Jesus returns or takes us to be with him, whichever comes first. Paul is telling a group of first century Roman Christians what it's really like to follow Christ. That we are united to Christ to bear fruit for him, that we battle indwelling sin on the way to guarantee victory so that we put our trust in Christ. And Paul is giving the unvarnished truth. He's writing to people living in a city of huge economic and social differences, comprised of upwards to 25% slaves, 
a place where justice or injustice were equally possible on any given day, a city of man-centered wisdom and fleshly pursuits. Sounds a lot like our cities. Similar issues going on today. We just have, you know, cell phones, social media, and hypermobility. An instant everything added to the mix, right? Instant everything. First century Christians had hard lives. And they also had the same indwelling Holy Spirit that believers have today. And they had the same enduring word of God that believers have today. And they had the same struggle with indwelling sin that believers have today in the midst of this ongoing sanctification process. What we see in this passage is that Paul, quite honestly and openly, is expressing the heart cry of a humble Christian in a series of four confessional complaints. That's what I'm calling them, confessional complaints. They're in verses 14 to 24, and and we can relate to every one of them. The first is this, in verses 14 to 17, I do what I hate. I do what I hate. A Christian can, can relate. A Christian can relate. When they sin, they, they, they do what they hate. So that's the first thing we see. We don't even have to write that down. We know it's true. The second thing we see in this passage, verses 18 through 20, is I can't do the good I want to do. So I do the things I hate, but I can't do the good I want to do. And then a third thing, verses 21 to 23, I am captive. I am captive to sin. And number, and ver, number four, verse 24, I am wretched. I do what I hate. I can't do the good I want to do. I'm captive and I'm wretched. That's the heart cry of a humble Christian. But then you see a beautiful burst of praise in verse 25. Basically, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Basically, Jesus delivers. Jesus delivers. So I do what I hate. I can't do the good I want to do. I am captive. I am wretched. And Jesus delivers. We're going to get to the first two points today. The rest will be next week. Now, what you want to keep in mind is this. As you're going through Romans, that Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 all go together, and that when the Bible was first given, it did, when, when, the, when the Holy Spirit was, in, was, was inspiring the writers to write it down, this is God-breathed, this is from God, it didn't have chapter and verse you know, stops. It was just one flowing thought. And it's very easy for us to go, well, I just read Romans 6, got that, check, okay, now Romans 7. Ooh, do I have to do that? I want to get to Romans 8. That's where the good stuff is. And what you need to realize is the Romans 6, 7, and 8 are all about the sanctification process. This is what it's really like to live in Christ. And so we're getting prepped and primed for a heavy dose of spirit-applied grace in Romans chapter 8 by Paul being very realistic about what it's really like to live the Christian life in chapter 7. Now some will say, the passage we're looking at today and next week, verses 14 to 25, describes Paul's life before he was a Christian. 
And they'll point out to things like this. Well, he says he's sold under sin, verse 14. He says there's nothing good in him, verse 18. He says he's wretched, that he's in a body of death. And that's a lot different from what we read in chapter 5, where we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a lot different than what we read in chapter 6, where we're, uh, we, we have a new life in Christ. Well, Paul, in this passage we're looking at, is clearly talking about believers. Those who want to obey God. And you see this in the passage as well. He wants to obey God. He hates sin. He's humbled you know, by God's grace. He's aware of his sinfulness. He confesses his sin. And in verse 25, you see, he wants to worship and serve and love Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Unbelievers can't do those things. They're spiritually dead. And if you need proof, just go to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Just go to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The whole human race is indicted under sin. And remember, keep the context of Romans 6, 7, and 8 in mind, which is describing the sanctification process. And the last time we were in chapter 7 we saw that Paul was mostly describing his past as an unbeliever. And so in chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, he is mostly describing his past as an unbeliever. How some are tempted to think the law is bad, and the answer was no, sin in us is the problem. The law, it exists to show us how sinful we are. Now, in verses 14 to 25, Paul is using present tense verses, verbs, excuse me, to describe his life as a believer. He's describing his life. He's, he is autobiographically describing his life in Christ and the battle with sin within and how frustrated we get with the feeble attempts to please God and how we fall in sin. And so he says, I do what I hate. The Apostle Paul is saying this, okay? The guy was, was writing Bible books. You know, God was using him. He hadn't disqualified himself as an as a apostle. He hadn't taken himself out of the running of leadership. He was just being honest about what it's like to live in Christ. He says, first thing here, I do what I hate. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold under sin. So you have the personal pronoun I, that's Paul. And he's representing all godly growing Christians, okay? Those who know by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, how far short they fall of God's glory. You're aware of it if you're a believer, you're aware of it. Aware of the spiritual battle burdened by your condition. And he says God's law is spiritual. That literally means of the Spirit, from the Spirit. It reflects God's holy character. God gave it. This is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is profitable. But Paul says, but I'm of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. And remember earlier in the chapter, he says the law exposes sin. Sin exploits the law. Law is good, sin is bad. And he's making the point, we're mortal, we're earthbound, we're jailed in unglorified humanity. Paul says the flesh is in him. He says he is sold. That's bond slave conditions. He's sold under sin. 
It no longer totally controls him. He's not under the dominion anymore like unbelievers are. Yet, yet his fleshly body is being held captive. You know, sin is an alien power in the life of a believer. Verse 13 told us it is exceedingly wicked and evil. I don't think we need to have anyone tell us that sin is exceedingly wicked and evil, but this is what we, this is what we learn. We know this from experience, and we know it from the Word of God. Sin is the ultimate cause of death, and we cannot grasp how truly sinful we are. Sin contaminates it frustrates our desire to obey God's word as believers. You want to do right and you do wrong and you feel kind of like you're slipping and sliding down a hill, right? Verse 15, he says, I don't understand my own actions. I don't understand. I, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How many times are we Confused and frustrated by our own actions, our own choices, we do what we hate. Let me just tell you, this is a sign of spiritual health. See, before you were a believer, you didn't hate your sin. Paul is saying, I hate my sin, I'm doing the thing I hate. If you're a believer and you hate your sin, that's a sign of spiritual health. That's a sign of spiritual life. It's like when you know you have a fever. If you loved your sin, you would be in way worse shape. He says, I don't understand what I'm doing. It refers to knowledge beyond the facts, an idea of an intimate relationship, meaning here, acceptance, approval. He's saying, I'm doing things I don't approve of. You know what it's like. Every believer knows what it's like. Verse 16, if I do what I do not want, I agree. I give consent to the fact that the law is good. We agree. God's law is good. Our, our new nature defends God's holy standard. Perfect law is not to blame for our sin. The new self wants to honor God. Verse 17, he says, so it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. We know this, sin dwells in us. And the goodness of the convicting law of God is now being contrasted with the wickedness of sin. And he says, no longer is it I who do it. Literally, no longer. That means there's been a total lasting change. Okay, Before you knew Christ, it was you who did it. Now it's no longer you who do it. What does this mean? Well, your new inner self, the new I, no longer approves of the sin that still resides in your flesh like the old self did. You used to approve of it. Now you disapprove. This is Galatians 2.20 territory. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So instead, you strongly disapprove of the sins you commit. Now, a lot of people would mistake this as abdicating personal responsibility for your sin, and embracing some sort of Greek dualism. Uh, dualism taught that you know, the body is evil and the spirit is good, and so people would claim, hey, I'm not responsible for my sin here. 
You know, it's like people say, the devil made me do this, or someone forced me to sin. And, and they'll say, hey, it was a part, it's just a part of my physical body. Uh, my spirit's clean. Not true. Not true. Here is Paul, the apostle Paul, admitting he is guilty for his sin. Now, if Paul can admit it, I should be able to. He said, sin that dwells in me. So he's picturing his sin creeping out from his unredeemed humanness, the flesh. Some people are also going to conclude from places like this that the believers have two competing natures. The old man versus the new man. Like, like as if there was a battle with a squatter going on that won't leave even though you've tried to evict him many times. Or maybe this picture of like two cats fighting and the stronger one's going to win. Now that can lead to a defeatist mentality where you say, well, you know, I'm going to sin anyway. What's the use trying not to sin? Some will go to the other extreme and they'll say, you know, I'm not even weighed down by sin any longer. I I don't sin anymore. And and they adopt a hyper-spiritualized, higher-life perfectionist mindset. And both that defeatist mentality and that perfectionist mindset are both inaccurate. They're out of biblical balance. For a believer, you are indwelt by the Spirit, and you still are indwelt by sin. You know, we say that Jesus saves us from the power and the penalty of sin. Then we say, and someday, he will save us from the presence of sin. Sin is still dwelling in our life. So we are battling inclinations to sin, even though we hate it. And it drives us to Christ, not ourselves. This is the point. Think about Ephesians chapter 2. It starts off, you were dead. Now, it's talking about spiritually you were dead, because... You were breathing. You were doing all the things you do. But you were alive without Christ, breathing. That's spiritual death. And and then you were made alive in Christ. By faith in Christ, God made you alive. Incomparable riches were given to you. And actually, here's how it happened. You learn this later as you go through the Bible. What happened was, God made you alive so that you could believe in Christ. Made you alive in Christ. You're no longer a slave to sin but you're still struggling with the tendency to sin. So one new nature with indwelling sin remaining. It's a struggle. That's why we're told to put off sin. Like in Colossians chapter 3, put off those old things. Put on the, you know, the, new, the new clothes of a Christian. Put on what God has provided for you. Apply it. You want to apply this right away? Apply it like Paul did? Then you need to confess your sinfulness, and not only confess your sinfulness, but specific sins that you commit. Now, we're not gonna do that right now. You know, we, we're not gonna just have like a confession of sin you know, session right now. I mean, we wouldn't get past like the first row, right? No offense, but I mean, sorry <laughs> about that. <laughs> You're like the sweetest people in the world. I had to pick on them, right? Come on. We need to confess our sinfulness and our specific sins. We start with this row, right? We wouldn't get past the pulpit, all right? <laughs> you got to get specific with God and with trusted others. 
you got to hate your sin and desire to do what's right. Here's what a true believer does. You go, if I, am I really a believer? Am I really a Christian or not? Or did, did I just say I believe and then, you know, I sinned and stuff and God kind of kicked me out? Well, a true believer admits how sinful they are and actively chooses not to sin and they love Jesus, they hate their sin, they want to do what the word of God says and they know they have the indwelling spirit. But they don't deny their sin. They're self-aware of their sin and they bring their sin to the cross. Jesus died for our sins. Now here's what happens with all of us. We repeat the same sins over and over again. We repeat the same sins. Different in my life, different in your life, but we repeat the same sins. This is why in verse 15 when Paul said, I do the very thing I hate, he is talking about something specific. And there's a really good reason why he didn't name it. Because that's what you'd be thinking about right now. I can't believe the Apostle Paul struggled with that. We get all judgmental about other people. And we don't even think about our own hearts. You know, we're going to take the bread and the cup today. And, and the Bible makes it really clear. Those who eat of the bread and drink of the cup need to examine their own hearts. Paul is talking about something specific. So let's get real with this. What do you struggle with? What do you struggle with? What sins do you keep repeating over and over again? You have to start by identifying those things. Those aren't hard to identify. And then you need to confess it specifically to the Lord and someone you trust. Don't fall into the rut of telling everyone, well, you know, this is what I'm like. Just get used to it. I mean, how many times do we say that? Well, they're just like that. They're a professing believer. God doesn't want them to just be like that. If just being like that is hurting other people and sinning against other people. Every believer has unique spiritual gifts from God, right? We're all gifted by God. But also every believer has unique signature sins. Signature sins. Propensities to specific sins they go into patterns, go into ruts. Sin's a lot like sugar. Looks and tastes good, but it can kill you. It can mess you up. For a long time, I, I went through a period where I'm like, I'm not going to eat any processed sugar. Right? I'm going to not eat any processed sugar, and I stayed away from desserts and this, that, and the other, and what happened was I lost cravings for it. Well, the battle is very intense at first, and then when you stop eating sugar, you lose the craving for it. The problem is, every time I eat sugar again, I crave it like crazy. I'm in that mode right now. Who has a cookie? Throw me a cookie. This week, seriously, this week, I tried to break myself once again of the addiction. You know, I, I sunk to a new low about a week ago. I ate wedding cake. I mean, come on. But every time I say I won't get hooked again, I get hooked on it. I go back to it. 
It is so deliciously deceptive, is it not? That's what sin is like. And we're not to feed the addiction. We're not to feed the addiction. We're to feed the affection that God gives us and puts in our heart for Him and gospel truth. See, what happens is when you become a believer, it's, it's sin within meets the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we want to please God, and, and we long to please God, and it's evidence of our conversion, but there is a battle going on in our heart every day. I love when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because life is directionless and purposeless and meaningless apart from acknowledging Christ as Lord and aligning with his word. This is why the psalmist cries out in Psalm 119 verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart so that I would not sin against you. You, you, you know your propensity and so you're like, I've got to have the word in my heart and I've got to trust the spirit so that I won't excuse my sin. So that I won't Keep going on and on and on until there's a hard heart. But instead that by the Spirit's power we would even refuse to sin and we would uh, repent of our sin and that we would confess our sin and know that we struggle with it daily and we're not some you know, odd person out that you know, we're the only one. I think this is what it means when, when it... When we, when we read earlier on that we serve God in the new way of the Spirit. Because Jesus said, deny yourself. That's not easy. That is very hard to do, to say no to yourself. And the battle is real. This is why Paul is confessing, I do what I hate. And not only that, but the second confession he makes, not only do I do what I hate, but I can't do the good I want to do. Verse 18, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire. He's willing. He's got this intense longing. It's the proof of salvation. But he says, I have this desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Isn't that frustrating? You want to do the right thing, but sin has set up a base camp in your life from which it operates, and you're not inherently sinful, but because of your fallenness, you're not, excuse me, you're inherently sinful, but you're not, how, how, how can I put it? You're not identified any longer by just your sin. That God changes you, that he transforms you, that he, he puts you into Christ, that he commits you to his word, and he puts you on a path where you are going to be conformed to the image of Christ. And while you still are sinful, you are still subject to sin, you are still contaminated, you, you know that your flesh is hounded and, and harassed by the presence of sin. You also know that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, he says, I do not do the good I want, 
but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. We want to please God, but we choose to sin. And he's showing, he's, he's showing the, the depth and agony of defeat to sin. You know, chapter 6 says, don't go back to your old master's sin. Desires to sin are going to still spring up, and they must be resisted. And we are going to get into Romans 8. We are going to get into Romans 8, and it's not mutually exclusive from Romans 7. It's not like, well, 7's off the table now. Romans 8 supersedes it. No, it's all in the same context. And Romans 8 tells us our hope has not yet been fully realized. We have been freed from the dominating power of sin in Christ, but there is still some bondage to sin until the day we die, and this is complex. Freed from the power of sin, and sin continues to have some influence in our life. Just remember, Romans 6 through 8 go together, and we will be delivered in the future. We will be freed from our, from our corruptible bodies And we are responsible for our sin. And so we, with Paul, need to confess our inability in our own strength, unable on our own. And we do what we detest, and indwelling sin still has power. And we're to walk by the Spirit so we won't carry out the desires of the flesh. I think that it's really easy to see why Paul longed to be with Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, he he talks about this. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 4 to 9. He says, We groan while we are in this tent body, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. This is why Paul said in, first, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. That is far better, but to remain on is more necessary on your account. Verse 20, He says, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You see, those who are growing in Christ-likeness, those that are growing in holiness, they see themselves as really bad sinners. They don't walk around saying that they're not a sinner. I love how Paul put it. Again, the Apostle Paul saying, I am the chief amongst the sinners. I'm the foremost. We should never forget our testimony. We should never forget where we came from. If you are happy in your sin, you're hostile to God. God is holy. We are sinful. The more you are aware of God's holiness, the more you're going to be aware of your own sinfulness and your need to trust Christ. And the more you trust Christ, the more humble you become and the more you grow in his grace and his knowledge. Why do you think that God saves us and leaves us in the battle until he calls us home or comes again? Why does he he make us a new creation and, and leaves us in the battle? 
He's got a purpose unfolding. He's got people that he is drawing to himself, that he's using us to reach. And God doesn't take away all of our sinful passions. He chooses to be glorified by our choice to obey him. He is working all things together for good. Philippians 2 tells us that just as you're obeying, just as you've obeyed, then work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear displeasing God. Trust him, not yourself. You are a positional new creation with progressive sanctification going on and a battle with indwelling sin going on. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, says, I, I don't want you to be unaware, uh, the affliction that we uh, experienced in Asia, we were utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We have a resurrected Savior. And it says this, I love this, it says, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. And so when Paul cries out, who's going to deliver me? We'll look at this in more depth next week. That deliverance is like dragging your comrade off the battlefield who's injured and out of the battle to save their life. And, and it says Jesus is going to deliver us. We have been, if you're a believer, you've been delivered from many sins. You've been freed from many things. But you will have full deliverance someday. And I love what Paul says. He says, in that same passage, he says, you must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted through the prayers of many. And, and the point I want to make with this is that God, God had Paul not as solo Christian, solo apostle. He didn't walk alone. He was transparent. And here he puts it all out on the line for us to see. He shared it with everyone. And I think just for us to apply this, I would say this, that we need to invite and welcome other people to tell us the truth about ourselves and to give people permission with realistic eyes to invite a friend to tell you the truth about you. Paul was not alone. Paul, Paul had people in his life. Uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And the greatest gift is the truth. And if someone gives you that permission, carry it soberly, carry it wisely. Don't use it to hurt them. Speak the truth in love. Apply the word lovingly. Because I think that we live in the land of self-serve, self-directed discipleship. We think that we get to pick and choose whatever we want. And it's all about our individual autonomy where God intends spirit-led community-based discipleship. So we have to rely on other people. We have to seek help from others and seek to help others. We need to uh, release information, uh, be willing to self-disclose and ask good questions. We need to risk the embarrassment because the goal is Christ-likeness, not self-preservation. Paul is laying it out on the line. We all get to read it. But who in your life can you welcome into your life or have you welcomed into your life to tell you the truth about you? Who are you willing to hear from? 
Why is it so difficult for us to confess our own sinfulness and our specific sins? It's because of our pride. Why are we so prone to judge other people but not our own hearts? Paul cries out, I do what I hate. I can't do the good I want to do. You know what God does? God confronts us. God comforts us uh, through the preaching of his word. Uh, He doesn't coddle our sin. He doesn't condone our sin and our selfishness. But what what we rejoice in is that he condemned sin at the cross to make believers more like Christ. So we ought to cling to the cross. Romans 6 says our old self was crucified with him. Romans 7 is all about this, okay? God unites believers to Christ so they bear fruit for him and it will be a battle with sin all the way through on the way to guaranteed victory so that we put our trust in Christ and not ourselves. And Romans 7 is meant to encourage believers immensely beyond measure by giving us a picture of the realistic Christian life. It's not one of despair, it's one of joy. What Romans 7 is, and especially this passage, is none other than confession of sin by a sinner saved by grace. And it is not all misery and defeat. There's deep joy that he expressed and deep delight in God's word, which proves you have the Holy Spirit. I love what Romans 8 says, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And we need to accept this as the normal Christian life. Hating our sin and loving Jesus. Not living in defeat. Knowing it won't be until Jesus comes again or takes us to be with him that our battle with sin will be over. But we must trust in Jesus. Trust the spirit who lives within us. And what happens is, let me just give you a preview in verse 25. It leads to a crescendo of praise, a conclusion of praise. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it it flows right into chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then you go all the way to the, uh, the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. That's a testimony to the providence of God uh, that everything doesn't fall apart because of our sin because he holds everything together by the word of his power. So you get to the end of chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can now Praise you in Christ for what you are doing and what you have done. Thank you for setting us free from the power and the penalty of sin. Thank you, Lord, that one day you will free us from the presence of sin. Until that day, we pray that we would trust you, Lord, and that we would please you and that we know it's not in our own strength, but that you would glorify yourself in and through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.